Good morning. Thank you for that good morning over here somewhere. <laughs> and good morning to the rest of you, too. <laughs> I uh, chose the hymn this morning, uh, Amazing Grace. I was thinking of that line in it that said, uh, Amazing Grace, I'll sweep the sound, that saved a wretch like me. And uh, I don't know if you feel that, if you felt that at the time of your conversion, how you were a guilty wretch before the Lord, a sinner through and through. In some ways, I hope you did. Um, some people don't come to salvation that way with that terrible, you know, feeling of guilt and all that. But um, there's an interesting passage where the woman came to Jesus at Simon's house and, he, and she uh, washed Jesus' feet with her tears and she wiped his feet with her hair. And Simon was all bent out of shape because she was doing this and, and basically said, she's a sinner. You know, doesn't, if he was a prophet, he would know she's a sinner. Well, of course Jesus knew she was a sinner. And Jesus told a parable to Simon, and, and essentially the parable was to show Simon that those who have been forgiven much love much. And that's what he said at the end in uh, Luke um, chapter 7 and verse 47, it says, therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little." As we look at our passage this morning, it really is all about love and our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a correlation uh, between how, how far we sense we were from the Lord before we were saved and how near he has brought us to himself. And I hope you never forget that. I hope you never forget what the Lord has done for you in salvation. Well, as we begin this morning, <clears throat> let's go ahead and uh, we'll put the first slide up. We are beginning to look at chapters 2 and 3 over the next seven weeks, and the, the chapters deal with seven churches in Asia. And um, if you remember, well, we'll get to the outline in just a minute. But before we start this, I want to just say this. Everyone loves a, um, enjoys a great love story, and especially a story that is something like this. The story begins with a young girl who is poor, dirty, despised, and uh, she is found by her Prince Charming, and he falls in love with her, and soon he pops a question and offers a ring as a pledge of marriage to her and a pledge of his love for her, and she accepts the proposal. And if you were there that day and you saw it, everybody's heart would, you know, leap. Oh, isn't this great? He's proposing to her. And she accepts his proposal. The wedding invitations are sent out, and at the wedding, the couple, as usual, pledges their love for one another in sickness and health and rich, for richer, riches, uh, for richer or poorer for sickness and in health, better or worse, I forget all the saying, but the whole thing at the end of the day is all the good stuff or all the bad stuff, 
we're going to stick together through and through, and we're going to love each other until the end. And the guests cheer for the couple as they begin their new life together. And the newlywed couple is introduced for the first time, Mr. and Mrs., we love each other, and their love story begins, and everyone wishes them uh, that they will live happily ever after and finish with a classic storybook ending. But, as is often the case, the story has its twists and turns in their marriage. And what began with hope and bright prospects ended with broken promises and a loveless relationship. The marriage started off well, but, you know, it just, things just became routine. And um, it was a ritual of sameness. And you say, what happened to their love story? What caused the rip? What interrupted the bliss? What stole their hearts from one another? And for those of you who are married, I ask you the question today about your marriage. Is it the same as when you first said, I do? Is it the same? Or has something happened along life's journey that is tearing at the fabric of your love? Will your marriage thrive? And will, it, and will you enjoy that classic happily ever after storybook ending? Or in the end, will we all look at your relationship and your marriage and say, whatever happened to them? Whatever happened to their love? If I told you in that situation, remember your engagement, remember your wedding day, remember your honeymoon, remember your early years of love, would you compare where you are now to where your marriage used to be? Or would you say, well, no, actually, the years have grown sweeter, richer, fuller. I'm more in love with you today than when I first said, I do. But if you look back at what used to be, and it's only a distant memory, repent. That is, turn from the direction you are heading and return to your first love. And this story that I'm telling you is actually a parable of the early days of the church. This is what happened at the church of Ephesus, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. So if you remember, the key verse that outlines the entire book of Revelation is uh, found in verse Revelation 1.19. Write these th the things which you have seen, that was chapter 1, and the things which are, that's chapters 2 and 3, and the things which will take place after this, that's chapters 4 to the end. So over the next seven weeks, we're going to look at chapters 2 and 3, and we're going to study each one of the seven churches one by one, week by week, in, in the order that they're given in the Scripture. Now, the Apostle John tells us in chapter 1 that he is exiled to the Isle of Patmos, and that it is the Lord's day, and he sees a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ standing among seven golden lampstands. We learn from that chapter that the seven golden lampstands are seven churches in Asia. And each church receives a personal note from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The first church is Ephesus, which is about 60 miles away from Patmos. 
John was very familiar with Ephesus, actually. At the end of his life, that's where he served. And so the letter, the first letter that goes out is to Ephesus, and then the letter is sent to the angels or the messengers of the seven churches in this order, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. The letter is from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the churches that receive the letter should sit up and take notice. This is a personal uh, note from the Lord to the individual churches. And what he says is, is significant and it's important for that particular church. Now, as I mentioned before, uh, it's helpful to remember that the letters contain the following. There is, first of all, timely truth. And what we mean by this is that um, the letters are written to actual churches that existed at that time, at the end of the first century. And so they're meant for those local churches. There's also timeless truth. The letters can apply to any church at any time in church history. In the church age, uh, if we were to read all of these letters, which, Lord willing, we will, uh, you'll find nuggets in each one of these letters. You say, well, you know what? That applies to me. That applies to this assembly. And so that's part of the purpose of these letters. We can't ignore the letters because, oh, well, that was written to Ephesus back in the first century. No, it's written for us, for our admonition as well, and applies to us today. And then third, there is a timeline of truth. Many Bible teachers believe that the churches, in the specific order in which they were um, noted, represent a chronological history of the church from Pentecost to the rapture. Now, the next chart that we have, I think you have this already or you've seen this already. Um, this lays out the seven churches. It lays out the approximate uh, period of time that uh, is represented by each church. Um, I, let me just say this to you. Don't be too rigid with the details of the dates. Um, it, the dates aren't all that important, uh, but it helps to give you at least a chronology, chronological look at the church from beginning to end. Um, there are local churches today that would fit any one of these categories. There are churches that are persecuted today. The church in China is persecuted. Uh, there are churches that are worldly or tolerant or dead or faithful or lukewarm, and there have been throughout history. But this gives you at least an approximate timeline of where uh, significant historical events took place in the church. So today our study is in the uh, book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 1, and we are looking at the church of Ephesus. It was around the year 52 AD when Priscilla and Aquila, you may remember them, they were a loving couple that uh, served the Lord. They were friends of Paul. They were tent makers and Paul first met them in Corinth. Um, and they moved from Corinth to Ephesus, and they purchased a home there, and they started the church in Ephesus in their home. Acts 18 and 1 Corinthians 16 tell us that. It was through their witness that the gospel was preached in Ephesus. Shortly after that, a man named Apollos joined them in Acts 18, 24 and 20 to 26. 
And Apollos was a uh, defender of the Scripture. He was an eloquent speaker, but he didn't understand the truth of the gospel. And so Aquila and Priscilla took him to their home and taught him the way of truth more accurately. And he became a lion in the defense of the gospel of grace and taught that Jesus is the Christ. Priscilla and Aquila opened their home to serve the Lord. And soon a growing, thriving, loving church sprang up in the midst of darkness. Uh, uh, Ephesus was a very dark city that was filled with idolatry and wickedness. But this church, this home-based church, as it started, was a light um, to um, the community. Aquila and Priscilla devoted their lives to serving the Lord at the church in Ephesus, faithfully ministering right to the end of their lives. You know, I can't help but think, when I think of, uh, of Aquila and Priscilla, I actually think of Howard and Kathy. And uh, I do because um, Howard and Kathy were, have been very much like Aquila and Priscilla in our assembly. And they started, the church actually started in the living room of their home. And they opened their home and let us make a mess of their home every week. And they opened their hearts and their home for a church to be planted. And what love they showed, not only then, but continuously to us as believers uh, through the years. What sacrifices they made for the Lord's sake. And they are an example to us of a loving couple to each other, but a loving couple to all of us. They love us with all their heart, and it shows. And for 41 years, they have faithfully ministered among us without ceasing. Now, after Apollos joined this assembly in uh, Ephesus, Paul came back to visit at the end of his second missionary journey uh, in, again, the, the book of Acts chapter 18. But it wasn't until the uh, third missionary journey of Paul that he settled in Ephesus to teach for three years. The church at Ephesus was blessed really beyond measure with a heritage of solid Bible teachers, solid leadership, including Aquila, Apollos, Paul, Timothy, uh, Onesephorus, Tychicus, Tim uh, Timothy I mentioned already, and the Apostle John, um, who was later arrested and exiled to the Isle of Patmos, the one who's writing this letter uh, or this uh, book of Revelation. So Ephesus had no shortage of strong, godly leadership from day one all the way through uh, their initial existence. The church, as I mentioned, began around 52 AD. John wrote Revelation and this letter addressed to Ephesus about 96 AD. So at that time, the church was about 44 years old when it received the letter from the Lord. And so you have to stop and say, okay, what happened? This is now a new generation. An entire generation has come and many of them have gone. A new generation has risen in its place. 
You have to look at the old guard that is still there and ask yourself, are they still just as much in love with the Lord as when they first started? Or are they tired of loving Jesus anymore? What about the new generation? Is their love alive for the Lord? Does the Lord have first place in their heart? What happened to the church of Ephesus? What does it look like after 44 years of existence? Consider this. Calvary Bible Chapel began in 1982 in the living room of Howard and Kathy's home. And nearly, it's now 2023, so in September, we will reach the 41-year mark of Calvary Bible Chapel. The old guard is reaching the end of our days. I'm including myself in the old guard. And we are now in the second generation what will happen at Calvary Bible Chapel in the years to come? If we could see the Lord Jesus today, this may surprise you, but if we could see him today, he is here with us this morning. The scripture tells us that. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. I don't see him physically, but I hear him through his word. And I hear what he is saying to us is the same thing he is saying to the church at Ephesus. The same thing he said to the apostle uh, Peter. Peter, do you love me? Peter had fallen, remember? He had denied the Lord. Peter, do you love me? Oh, must have struck right to his heart. I'm sure he felt ashamed for what he had done. And he said, Lord, you know, I'm fond of you. Ouch. And the Lord asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? And I think the Lord is asking us the same question. Calvary Bible Chapel, or maybe even more personally, Don Robertson, do you love me? Do you love me just as much today as you loved me the day you were saved? Good question. Does Jesus have first place in my heart? Well, I want you to remember this key that we looked at earlier uh, in our study. The theme of the book is the Lord Jesus Christ. Look for Christ. Revelation is a portrait gallery of Christ. And here we find him front and center in each of the churches because it is his church. In Revelation 2, verse 1, it says, well, first of all, my first point is this. Look for Christ. Behold the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 2, 1 says this. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things, says he, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now that phrase that I just read comes from chapter 1. And you'll see in the first several um, churches that phrases are taken from what John saw in chapter 1. And so this phrase here, 
is that he who holds the seven stars in his hand, the seven stars we are told in chapter 1 are seven angels of the church, of the seven churches, and the golden lampstands are the churches. Each letter begins with a reminder of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And the Lord tells the church of Ephesus that he holds the seven stars. He holds the angels in his hand, and he himself walks amidst his churches, the golden lampstands. The Lord Jesus Christ is alive and active, and he is here this morning with us. As I mentioned, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. Why is the Lord so intimate with his church? It's because the Bible tells us Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she should be holy and without blemish. We know that this has to be the motivation uh, the Lord's motivation as he writes a message to each of the seven churches. John emphasizes Christ's great love for us in chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, to him who loved us and washed us from our sin in his own blood. And he has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Believers, the Lord loves you. And he desires that you love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. John saw in the midst of the seven lampstands one like the Son of Man. And this illustrates the Lord walking among his churches. He's not just a visitor. He's not just an observer. He wants to be actively participating in the work of the church, building his church. The Lord Jesus Christ is, has tender care and intimacy for his church. The golden lampstands represent the seven churches. The lampstands are golden, which represents purity. A lampstand it was placed in the room so that the light from the lampstand might fill the room with light. And in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus taught us, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Golden lampstands. The church should be pure and holy. The church should be a light to the world. The church is meant to actively engage in good works to glorify our Father in heaven. And Calvary Bible Chapel is placed in the city of Fremont as a pure testimony to bring light, the, the light of the gospel to our community. And Jesus is in our midst. John describes what he sees. It's the Lord Jesus Christ walking in the midst of his church. 
He is actively involved and personally involved in the local assembly. The Bible tells us he's the head of the church. Noah told us last week he is the judge of the church. For judgment must first come to the household of God. But he is a judge who is loving. And he lovingly walks among his church, pleading with us to follow him. Dear saints, I want you to understand that the Lord Jesus Christ is here with us today, right now, here, in our midst, walking in our midst, pleading with us, encouraging, exhorting, and rebuking us, and, a pro and promising a great reward if we just listen to him. Come with your ears wide open today. Listen to what the Lord says to us. One of the keys, as I mentioned, look for Jesus. Look for Jesus. He is here in this place today. The first thing the Lord does is he tells the church, not only does he tell them about himself, but then he concentrates on the strengths of the church. And so I want to look at those now, verses 2 and 3 and verse 6. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Verse 6, but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. What are the strengths of the church of Ephesus? First of all, the works, their works. Jesus said, I know your works. And you know, the early um, history of the book of, I mean, sorry, of the church of Ephesus is quite remarkable. A great work began as a home church. They started an all-out effort uh, to spread the gospel in a city that was wholly devoted to idolatry. Um, there, there was a, um, uh, a goddess that they worshipped named Diana, and the city was wholly given over to her and other idols too. And the work that uh, was done in the city was a hard work. It was an exhausting work. I'm sure it was a frustrating work, but they sowed the gospel seed. They watered the seed that they sowed, and the Lord brought forth fruit. In every way they could, they proclaimed the name of Jesus because they loved him, and they wanted others to love him too. The works. I know your works. I know your labor. Actually, twice this is stated in... Um, Verses 2 and 3. In verse 2, it says, I know your labor. And then later in verse 3, it says, And you have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Paul labored. When he came, uh, he came and he taught in the uh, synagogue for three months until finally they had enough of Paul and sent him on his way. And Paul rented a school, the school of Tyrannus, and he... Um, taught the Bible there for two years. Really, it was like the very first Bible school ever. And Paul taught there. And there were probably others that taught there too. And from the teaching from that school, all of Asia heard the gospel. 
And so men came, they were taught, then they went out. They preached the gospel. They taught the word of God. And from that place in Ephesus, um, the gospel spread and sound teaching spread throughout all of Asia. And God worked there too. The Bible says God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, both in healing and in casting out evil spirits. But as the church labored in preaching the gospel, many people were converted uh, to the Lord. And the impact of their labor was seen as people trusted the Lord and they repented of their idolatry and the practice of magic. In fact, there came a day when those who were converted to Christ came together and they said, you know what, we have all these magic books that we've bought. We've been involved in the, basically the occult. We've been involved in cultish practices. We don't want anyone possessing the, per- the books that we purchased, and we are going to burn them. And they had a bonfire, and they burned the books in a bonfire in the city of Ephesus, and the value of the magic books, this was an act of repentance, the value of the magic books was 50,000 pieces of silver. Well, what does that equal? 50,000 days of labor. Now, you calculate how much money that is. That's a lot of money. And they said, you know what? I'd rather destroy it than anybody be influenced by this stuff. And so they burned it as an act of repentance. That's part of their labor. Their patience is next. Jesus said, I know your patience, verse 2. And then later he says, you have persevered and have patience. The conversion of so many people to Christ led to a mass exodus from idolatry. The city, as I mentioned, was given wholly over to the worship of the goddess Diana. And many people in the city made their living off of making silver shrines for people to use in their worship of this goddess. The impact from the gospel was so significant that there was a huge drop of revenue for the uh, silversmiths, the ones who made these shrines. And it's, their livelihood was threatened, and so they lashed out against the Christian community. The silversmiths caused a riot to break out because Paul and the believers were persuading people, so many people, to turn from their idols to serve the living and true God. It's what happened in Thessalonica. It also happened in Ephesus. In 1 Thessalonians, we read, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And the believers patiently endured the persecution that followed because of the out lashing from the silversmiths and, and the town people. What's the story of your conversion when you look back at it? When you got saved, did you have the same kind of love for the Lord as these Ephesians had? Where you said, I don't want anything else on the throne of my heart other than the Lord Jesus Christ. They loved the Lord so much that idols had no more part of their life. 
Their heart was on fire for the Lord, and they set their former magic books on fire as an act of repentance. Nothing from their past was going to take any place in their heart. Nothing. And so they bore fruit worthy of repentance by making a clean break uh, from their past. I remember as a new believer, I saw things that I possessed, and I said, you know, this reminds me of my sin. Every time I look at it, I'm reminded of my sin. I'm reminded of the way I lived before I met Christ. And so I did a great sorting of my stuff. And I remember going through everything that I had in my possession, even clothing, things that are actually neutral, in, uh, but they were gifts or they were somehow associated with um, sin in my life. And I said, I don't want any remembrance of my sin. I don't want to remember my past life. And I took it all, and we couldn't burn stuff in those days in the front yard, but it was broken up so nobody could use it, and it was trashed. I loved the Lord more than I loved the stuff. And I wanted the Lord to have first place in my heart. I think of what the Lord Jesus Christ did for me, saving my soul. And I said, Lord, you deserve everything. You deserve, you deserve all my love. You deserve my whole heart. I don't know if you've ever done that in your life. Are there things that you possess that are snares to you, that remind you of sin in your life? If you destroy them, it's freeing. I can tell you that. Jesus had first place in the heart, hearts of the Ephesians. Does he have first place in your heart this morning? As you seek the Lord, have you endured persecution and threats? Have you suffered with patience? The Ephesians certainly did. The next thing the Lord notes is their stand against evil. The Lord commended them for taking a stand against those who are evil. Some tried to worm their way into the church, the local body of believers at Ephesus, Ephesus. And they claimed that they were apostles, that they had the word of the Lord. You need to listen to me because this is a word from the Lord. And they were liars. And the Ephesian church was strong in their faith, strong in their understanding of the word. And they stood up and fought against false teachers and the lies that the false teachers were bringing to them. Jesus said, I know that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. They dealt with men who were blasphemers, Hymenaeus and Alexander. They rejected those who taught fables and endless genealogies, and those who wanted to be teachers of the law yet knew nothing. And throughout the epistles of First and Second Timothy, Paul encourages Timothy, who is serving at the church at Ephesus, to stand against evil doctrines of false teachers. And uh, they certainly did that. They engaged in the spiritual battle, and they stood firm. And the Lord took note of it, and he says, well done. That's really what he's saying here in these first couple of verses. He encourages them and applauds their discernment. Paul had warned the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, that savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up from among yourselves, he says. Not just those who come in from the outside, but those who rise up 
from among yourselves, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. It seems that the church of Ephesus was attacked by false teachers from without, from outside the church, and those who rose up from within. Yet, they stood their ground against them. The Lord also encourages them in verse 6 and compliments them for their hatred. Wow, that's surprising, right? That the Lord is complimenting somebody for hatred? But it's a hatred against false teachers and the, and the doctrine that they bring. It is not completely clear who the Nicolaitans were. Some teachers believe that they held doctrines that led Christians astray into sensuality, sexual immorality, eating um, meat offered to idols, and the like, all under the guise of Christian liberty. And in the church, um, in the letter to the church of Pergamum, something is stated there about the Nicolaitans again. And they're compared to Balaam, the false prophet from the Old Testament, and his false teaching, and how he led the people of God into immorality and wickedness. And any doctrine that teaches Christians to live in pleasure and self-indulgence and sensuality must be hated. Paul warned Timothy that in the last days, perilous times would come, and we are living in the last days. Brethren, Paul says, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And from such people turn away. There is a hatred for this kind of thing that we must have if we really have love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Other Bible teachers believe or point out that the name Nicolaitan, Nicolaitans means to rule over the laity. And they believe that this was the beginning of the church pastoral system that was never meant to be in Scripture. That is not found in the Bible. That is made up by men. The Lord is the head of the church, not a man. He raises up a plurality of elders to shepherd his flock. But the pastoral system has raised up men who have become controlling and demanding. And the Apostle John rebuked such a man uh, in his, his third epistle, a man called Diotrephes. And he said this, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words, and not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The strength of this church and the commendations from the Lord are really quite remarkable when you read what the Lord is saying about this church. It's a remarkable church. 
And it sounds like a solid, Bible-believing, conservative, dedicated, devoted church. What could possibly be wrong with this church? Well, next we come to its faults, verses 4 and 5. Jesus is speaking, remember, and he says, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You have left your first love. We started this morning with a story that seemed like it would end with a happily ever after storybook ending. But it ended in a loveless relationship. How tragic that is when we see that happening in, in a married couple, in, in a relationship between a married couple. And it doesn't matter if they're saved or unsaved. Any time a marriage ends that way in, in lovelessness, it's tragic. But it's even more tragic to have lifelong friends whose marriages end in a loveless way. Imagine waking up and saying to your wife or saying to your husband, I'm sorry, I just don't love you anymore. I just don't love you anymore. Imagine being married for 10 years and hearing those words. Imagine going 25 years and hearing those words. Or 40 years, or in the case of Ephesus, 44 years, and saying that to your spouse. And you know, when you see a situation like that in a marriage, you, you have to ask yourself, what went wrong? What happened? And the things that destroy love in a marriage include many things, but some of them are selfishness, money, a lack of holiness, ungratefulness, illicit pleasure. These are the same things that destroy our, relation, our fellowship, not our relationship, that destroy our fellowship with God and destroy our love for God. If this is true of us, we have fallen into sin. And that's why Jesus says, repent, turn away from your sin, turn back to me. And Jesus appeals to his church, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Where did you start in the Christian life? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. That's where we started. Isn't that where you started? That's where I started. Repent, he says, and do first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. A husband finds his wife is cheating. And he says, turn from your other lovers. Return to me, and I will forgive you. Love me, 
as you first loved me. I will forgive you, but you must turn away from your sin. The Lord is making the same offer as he stands among us today. And he walks among us today. The Lord is making the same offer to his church. Turn your heart away from all other lovers and return to me. I will forgive you. Love me as you first loved me. I will forgive you, but you must repent of your sins. And the blood of Jesus that first cleansed us from the penalty of our sins will cleanse us from the power of sin in our lives. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Turn from all other lovers. Turn back to the Lord. I was recently reading through the book of Ezekiel, and I was listening to it uh, on a tape, actually. Uh, or a tape, That's, that dates me. Uh, I was listening to it on a, an MP4, something like that, I mean, electronically, as I was walking. And I came to this passage in uh, Ezekiel 16, and I replayed it several times because it's so striking to me. And the Lord is looking at the nation of Israel, and he reminds the nation of Israel that she has fallen so far from him. She once loved him. She once desired him. And she has gone astray. And this is what he says in Ezekiel 16, verses 4 through 22. As for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. But you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loathed on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. I made you thrive like a plant in the field. And you grew, matured, and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew, but you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed, your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord God. Then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood, and I anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey, and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect 
through my splendor, which I had bestowed on you, says the Lord God. I want to say this to you believers. The Lord has done far more for us than he did for Israel. These were all things that he did for Israel, but what he's done for us surpasses what he's done for Israel. How did they respond to this love of God to them? But you trusted in your own beauty, played the harlot because of your fame, and poured out your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have it. You took some of your garments and adorned multicolored high places for yourself and played the harlot on them. Such things should not happen nor be. You have also taken your beautiful jewelry from my, from my gold and my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself male images and played the harlot with them. You took your embroidered garments and covered them, and you set my oil and my incense before them. Also my food, which I gave you, the pastry of fine flour, oil, and honey, which I fed you, you set it before them as sweet incense. And so it was, says the Lord God. Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters, whom you bore to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your acts of harlotry a small matter? that you have slain my children and offered them up to them by causing them to pass through the fire? And in all your abominations and acts of harlotry, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, struggling in your own blood. Do we remember what the Lord saved us from? Have we abandoned our first love? That's the penetrating question that we must consider as we complete our study today. Have we left our first love? And if we have, what must we do? Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Next, um, John writes, you have abandoned your first works. This is the Lord speaking again. You have abandoned your first works. What was Ephesus known for? Well, we already looked at it, for her works for her labor of love, for her patience. So what happened? Did COVID hit the area? Did it sap her strength? Had she been caught up in the busyness of life? Had the economy caused her to abandon her diligence in serving the Lord? Why did she abandon her first works? It's unknown. It's not stated. But the Lord counsels her to repent. What are the works that the Lord has called us to do at Calvary Bible Chapel? The same works that he has called the whole church to do. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Make disciples of every nation, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded. If we don't concentrate on these fundamental things, we're in danger of the Lord removing our lampstand, removing our testimony in the community. Our testimony will be gone. We will be simply a memory of a work that once existed, a work that once loved the Lord. Jesus says, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. It would be a sad story if this is where 
Jesus ended his conversation with the church at Ephesus, but it's not. And he makes a promise. He says in verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. An overcomer hears what the Lord is saying and takes action. He repents. He turns. He seeks forgiveness. You know, when my children were young and they did something wrong, we would take them into a private room, most often the bathroom, but sometimes a bedroom. And we would have this private time with them and we would discipline them. And at the end of the discipline, when we saw that they were broken from what they had done wrong, we would expect them to say, Dad or Mom, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And we always, always, always ended the, the discipline with this phrase. It is forgiven and it is forgotten. And we would embrace the child. And when we repent, the Lord assures us that it is forgiven and it is forgotten. And he embraces us as his dear child and rewards our repentance. And the, re the Lord rewards us for giving him first place in our hearts again. And what's the promise? He says, we will eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Do you remember the tree of life? It was one of the trees in the Garden of Eden. There were two trees that were, sp were specified there. One was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which they were not to take from. And if the day that they took from that tree, they ate it, they would surely die, Adam and Eve. And they took from it, and they died. And as soon as they did that, the Lord blocked them from taking from the tree of life. Why? Because they were now sinners in a body that was dying and decaying. And had they taken from the tree of life, they would have lived forever in a body that is dying and decaying. Can you imagine Adam and Eve being here 6,000 years later? I don't know if you've seen people that are 100 or more, but it's pretty hard to live that, to that age anymore. But can you imagine somebody in pain and suffering 6,000 years old today? Had they taken from that tree? The Lord prevented it. But that tree is available to those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, have repented of their sin and have become his dear children. That tree is no longer in the Garden of Eden. That tree is in the paradise of God. That tree is in heaven. And it is available to all who have repented of their sin and have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. The tree... The Lord is going to give us bodies that will be fit for our eternal home. And we will enjoy the fruit of that tree, not in the Garden of Eden, but in paradise. That's in heaven. And we have a home in heaven where we will live forever with the Lord. The promise is that those who are genuinely saved will enjoy eternal life in the presence of our Savior, Jesus Christ whom having not seen, 
we love. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we think of your words to the church of Ephesus, it does strike at our heart as we see how easy it is for us to become distracted by other things, to become distracted in our love. And Lord, it is a shame to us uh, that we ever do this, considering your great love for us and what you have done for us on the cross. Lord, you loved us with an everlasting love. You died on the cross, Lord Jesus, shedding your blood to save us from our sin, to deliver us from being the wretch, the wretches that we were, and giving us a new, uh, new life, eternal life, giving us a new name, making us kings and priests to our God. Lord, you have done so many marvelous and wonderful things for us. Forgive us, Lord, for any moments any days, any weeks, months, or years that we have turned our heart away from you in any way. Forgive us, Lord. We repent this morning. Thank you, Lord, for your precious promises that those who overcome shall eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God, that we will be with you forever. We look forward to that day, Lord, when we'll be finished with this earth, finished with the things of this life, and be forever with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that it might be soon. In his name we pray. Amen.